Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, and boy, do I have a treat for you t- <clears throat> today for uh, for our guest. Today's guest, now I'm going to tell you something that one of our mutual friends said about our guest before I introduce him, that he is the by far the foremost expert in communication effectiveness in the world, is how he was billed um, by our mutual friend, Andy Andrews. And, and many of you will recognize his name, uh, Bob McEwen. He is a six-term uh, House of Representatives uh, from Ohio, from the, from right near our general neck of the woods. He's been a he's been a congressman. He he's I will tell you he is such a fascinating guy from his history. He gets invited still to help articulate and communicate very complex issues in a simple way. Um, he sits on as a senior advisor of the nationally recognized law firm of Greenbaum, Dahl, and McDonald. He bounces a little bit back and forth between uh, D.C. and, and Cincinnati. And, and I will tell you this, I've watched some of his videos, I've listened to him speak. Um, I am a little bit enamored and somewhat jealous of Bob's ability to communicate such great, complex topics in a simple way, because we espouse that here at Brain Trust, that we teach people how to do that. So I have the world's foremost expert at doing that on here. The other thing I find fascinating about, about you, Bob, is how many unique conversations that you've been in the room for over the last 30 years that most people would have no idea with some of the world's biggest leaders on some of the world's most complicated subjects. And you know, we can get into some of those if if we so choose. But welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you on. Well, Jeff, the honor is mine. I'm honored to be with you. And and uh, I feel like the mule that got entered in the Kentucky Derby, you know, his neighbors were all making fun. He said, you know, your mule's not going to win. He said, I know that, but he's going to be in some mighty fine company. And here it is. You're, you're in the business of communicating. I don't know anything about that, but I'm just honored to be with you and, and uh, look forward to our time together. Oh, excellent. Excellent. I, I think I get called the mule around here a lot too, but they use a different word for it. So I'm not sure. Um, it, it really is an honor to have you on. Um, one of the f- first questions I warned you in the pre-show and we always ask our guests are always, they love this part of, of this episode of, of the show is that they get to learn a little bit of the backstory. Um, a, lot, a lot of people know you as a congressman or, um, you, you know, now you're, what's your, what's your title with the, uh, the, po- your, your, the, the center of, yeah, the Council for National Policy. It was, I always uh, get it wrong. Yeah, Council for National Policy. You're the executive director there now as well, right? Yep. It's an organization that was formed uh, immediately at the start of the Reagan administration. It meets three times a year. Uh, my wife and I joined the third meeting, been members ever since, and I've been running it for the last decade or so. It's a celebration of the leaders of the conservative movement that uh, get together to join forces for the common good of our country. Wow. What an awesome, awesome mission. Well, let's talk about how you got there. So let's go all the way back. Um, I know we have a, a little bit of mutual, a little bit of mutual ground that we've probably tread upon in our early days. Uh, we're, 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 take us back to your origin story, where you kind of grew up, and maybe who influenced you in your early days to either want to get into politics or be someone who communicated or negotiated for a living. Well, I was privileged to to grow up in Hillsboro, 
And uh, the seventh congressman from Hillsborough, by the way. And it's uh, 60 miles from Dayton, Cincinnati, and Columbus. So your wife is from New Vienna, which is just right across the border in Clinton County. But uh, it made it convenient that I, when, in flying back and forth on the weekends, it was, I could go to any airport, and it would be an hour and a half from home. So uh, I had seven brothers and sisters. My mother died quite young. Uh, she was 39 and uh, left my father with seven children under age 13. And uh, it was a period of time back when polio was very prominent. We've since been able to eradicate that. But uh, my brother died on Thursday. Uh, my mother died on Saturday. My father had to plan a double funeral and then uh, grew up in, in the town in which uh, wonderful, wonderful people was able to to work in the grocery store there, were elected to the state legislature when I was in law school at Ohio State, and then uh, was followed the, my predecessor uh, in the Congress who served there, Bill Harsha. The Congress, the that congressional district has just been reconstructed. It goes from where you are from Mason over to to uh, nearly Athens, and it's been that way for a hundred years, except for the the last twenty years, it's been kind of lopsided. But other than that, it just ping ponged between Portsmouth and 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 Hillsborough, uh, back and forth over over a hundred and some years. And so my predecessor was from was from Portsmouth. His predecessor was from Highland County. His predecessor was back from Portsmouth, etc. So that's uh, I grew up with it with a passion for America. My father was a very very uh, patriotic, not political at all, and quite startled at how it all worked out. Uh, he, he found it. He, 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 had, he always had a frustration trying to understand how politics works. He, but he loved America and he loved the Lord, and the two of them made it such that I had a passion for a country. I, I got involved in politics because I loved America and I hated communism. And for those two motivations, I was blessed to uh, be able to hold public office. And for those who are listening who don't are familiar, <clears throat> if you picture Ohio on the map, kind of comes straight down from Columbus and a little bit over to the east from Cincinnati. And that little pocket there, you'll find this little town called Hillsboro. A little bit like a little bit, probably back in the day, especially a little Mayberry-like, right? It's a oh, yeah. very, very much one of those just good down-home country little uh, towns in America. And, um, and, and in fact... I think we probably had a lot of relatives that crossed paths with each other over the over the years. So you grew up in this in this very idealistic um, America, aspirational America that yep. I think sometimes today is is lost in in a lot of ways. Now, I also did I caught in there that I'm writing. I think I'm writing my last check to the Ohio State University. My daughter's a senior; she's graduating here soon there as well. So you got to be really educated. I mean, if you're a Buckeye graduate, I mean, on top of everything else, my goodness. So, so you got into Congress, and what what was the very first? You're not in Kansas anymore, or in this case, you're not in Hillsboro anymore, Toto. When when you got there and thought, "Wow, okay, this is not what I expected," uh, what was the first surprise? Let me tell you, I was fortunate uh, in, in a whole series of ways, as we recognize as God's blessing. Uh, I, my, my, my sister was dating a former congressman, and, uh, and I was in college. And I said, you know, I, I'd like to, to serve in public office someday. He said, well, you got to be an intern. And I said, well, what's that? He said, well, members of Congress have these things that uh, they, they, people, college students can come and spend the summer and, and work in the Capitol office. And so uh, I hitchhiked to Washington and, and uh, tried to subdue the congressman into having an intern. He did not want, my predecessor did not want anyone from Ohio. 
and he never had anyone from the congressional district. So I'm sort of the, <clears throat> the mirror opposite of what he didn't want, which was somebody who knew everything about politics in Southern Ohio at the beginning. And so he said no. And then there was a vote. And uh, so I went around to the staff and said, you know, you really need a gopher to come help you and do things. And they said, yeah, yeah, we do. And so there was a special little account just for interns, couldn't use it for anything else. Otherwise, it'd be wasted. And so I had them beat on him until finally I, I got uh, accepted. And so I was able to go and spend the first summer and uh, I ate, drank, and slept everything about it. Back in those days, people won't understand about with computers, but they used to have a thing they were called onion skins. That is when you type things, literally it was a typewriter and you push the button and the thing, it, it physically hit, hit the, the roller. And, uh, and they had them in, in alphabetical and then by topic. And they were all stored in, in the uh, shelves in there, in, in the uh, file cabinets. And so at the end of the day, I would pull out a file cabinet and I would take out a folder and I would see a letter from a person in Marystown, Ohio, who complained about the water, the, the fact that the, the ditches were overflowing and flooding into the field and then killing the hogs and that the local county commissioner didn't do anything about it. And what was the congressman going to do? And so then it, it take what that letter did and who it went to the Department of Agriculture, what their response was. And I sat and read these things hour after hour after hour, night after night after night. And then uh, he invited me to come back the next year and various other things, take a position of leadership in his office, which I declined because then I was going to go ahead and, and go to, to law school. But by the time I got to the legislature in Columbus, and or when I ran for office in the in my I was in my 20s. And in that rural area, the way you become a legislator is that you have to be uh, a county commissioner and you become a county commissioner by being a good trustee and you get to be a trustee by being a good farmer. So another, you have to be 50 before you can be considered. So all of these guys were former commissioners running for the state legislature. And I was running against them as a 20 something, but there wasn't a single question a person could ask me about what could or should be done that I didn't feel perfectly comfortable with doing. And it was because of, and the answer to your question is you're not in, in Kansas anymore. But I have no idea in the world. And quite frankly, just between you and me, Jeff, uh, most members of Congress do not know how to solve these problems. They hire people to hopefully deal with the bureaucracy. I never wanted to be that. I didn't want anybody in the office knowing anything I didn't know. And so I felt I could guide them. And what about this? And have you tried this? And let's go here. And uh, I, I could not, it was God's blessing without question. The congressman from Southern Ohio, my predecessor was one of the finest men to have ever served in office. And then uh, for that training for me to then follow him, I was uh, abundantly blessed. Wow. So you either <clears throat> intuitively or intentionally uh, through all of your studies and understanding and just desire to, to, to hear the voice of people became so well-versed and knowledgeable in what was needed that you could speak a language that really connected to the average constituent. Uh, it's interesting. I'm sure that that people who are skilled in sports, uh, they understand that, and and they they uh, I uh, have a nephew that is a, a hockey player, and he literally plays hockey all day long, and then after the games are all over, and it's late at night, and they've done the practices eight o'clock, and he then goes out and stands in the driveway with his skates, and he hits the ball, uh, hits the puck against the garage door. So there, there's people that that just love what they do, and I was fortunate to have a passion for America. And so I, there were people when I was a kid, there were, there were a handful of people I really wanted. I wanted to meet, I wanted to meet Herbert Hoover. 
who died uh, when I was 14. I wanted to meet Douglas MacArthur, commander of Allied forces in the Pacific. He also died when I was 14. I wanted to meet J. Edgar Hoover. Fortunately, I made I was able to meet him. But there were people that in, in that in that genre that I knew early on I needed to get to quickly because they were going to pass. And it was just like I would suspect people who love sports that they feel that way about ball players or something. It's the way I felt about America. Wow, that's amazing. And and I and I want to get into some of that today because I would love your context and perspective. I'm going to ask you some of the fun questions at the end around some of the world leaders that you interacted with and some people that you uh, really appreciate in their style and approach and philosophy. But I want to get into a couple of topics I'd love for you to unpack for the audience that people don't understand today. Um, let's just jump into a couple of them. So I, I was reading a, a an article last week and it was talking about how I think the research said something like 60 or 70% of Millennials and Gen Z articulate that they prefer a government that's built on socialism versus free market capitalism. And I, I kind of sat back in my chair and I thought, what? Because <laughs> my kids and I, we talk about this all the time. They clearly know the difference in what it yeah. means. But what what's happening? First of all, could you a little, you know, maybe explain in your in the way that you can simplify this, the difference between those. And then maybe talk, speak to what has happened in our culture today that's allowed that to even be something that people would even for a minute entertain is that their their preference. Well, let's start with the the idea that they don't see a need for it. See, uh, if you if things are handed to you forever, then you don't know how they are produced or where they come from. So if people just hand you money, then you don't, if you have to go out and work for, a, get a job when you're 16 and you save money for your first car and you pay for your first apartment, then when you do those things and don't have it all handed to you, uh, then you have a, an understanding of money and its value. America is so abundantly, abundantly wealthy. A third of all the goods and services produced on this entire planet are produced by 4% of the population of the world the United States of America. So, so we are swimming in this wealth. Let's just hammer it a little bit more. A person living in poverty is, oh, Bob, there's poor people. I understand. People living in poverty in America. This is not my opinion. This is the Wall Street Journal Her Heritage Foundation, the, Her the Rector study done every 24 months for the past 37 years. A person living in poverty in America is more likely to have a telephone, a television, an air conditioner, an automobile, eats more meat, has more square footage space than the average resident of the second richest spot on earth, Western Europe. That's the wealthiest spot. Now, the rest of the world, two-thirds of the world lives on less than $4 a day, so uh, uh, the price of a Starbucks. So when when we live in this condition and we see people that, that we have this abundance, we say, well, why don't they give money to that person? Well, that's just like the 10-year-old that sees a person that doesn't have a nice car as you have. And so you say to your father, why don't you give him your car? So, well, wait, that's not the way it works. He earned his car. I earned my car. We have to do this together. Uh, he's not entitled to what I have. I'm not entitled to what he has. We're entitled to have the freedom to produce what we want. So in answer to your question, what's the difference between free enterprise and socialism? There's a fellow driving down the street. Stop and think. A fellow driving down the street. There's two ways I can get money out of that person's pocket. Only two, only two. That is one, I can stand on the side of the road and think up ways to do something good for the person that is so valuable to him, that is such a blessing to him, 
that he'll slam on his brakes and pull in the driveway and say, you're going to wash my car and clean the windows and wash off the dashboard and sweep the carpeting. I would much rather have that than have this $10 bill. I'd much rather have that tire than have this $100. I'd much rather have that global positioning system than two. I'd much rather have that pair of shoes than the same. And pick, under free enterprise, this nation, 4% of the population of the world, produces more books, more plays, more symphonies, more copyrights, more inventions than the rest of the world combined because under free enterprise, we're rewarded because of what we do for others, not because of who we are. I said there are two ways to get money out of that person's pocket. The other way is called socialism. It's called coercion. It's where I go and take it. Now, if I just walk out in the street with my gun, as you are in in Philadelphia or New York or Detroit or Los Angeles or Chicago, we call those people criminals. However, if we band together and we get thousands of people to vote for us, to pass a law that says, see that person there, we're going to take money from them and give it to you. We call that socialism. Socialism is when the, Bernie Sanders says, if you vote for me, you won't have to pay to go to college because see that farmer out there working in his field? I'm going to take money out of his pocket and pay for you to go to college if you'll vote for me. And they do. Now, what happens when that, when, when that takes place? Under socialism, the fellow who had to pay for it but didn't get the money, he had to work, work but then the government stole it from him, he's discouraged, so he fails to produce. And for the person who didn't work at all and got it free, <laughs> why would they work? And so socialism, the degree to which you have it, is the degree to which there is poverty in a nation. Why? Because it discourages productivity and rewards inactivity, such that when the communists took over in, in Chile on the very first announcement, when the president was sworn in, he said, everybody in this country is equal. Everybody in this country is going to be treated equal. When, because God made you, you're going to get the same amount of money regardless of what you do. Well, well wonderful. In that case, and productivity in the, in the copper mines in Chile fell 70% in the first 30 days. Now, socialism creates poverty every time, without exception. When I was young, the richest city in the history of mankind, the history of the greatest city in the world, the richest place, more three-floor single-family dwellings than any place in the world, a place called Detroit, Michigan. They elected a governor who was a racist. He says, I'm going to appoint people based upon their skin color, not because of the content of their character. And today, as you and I are sitting here having this discussion, Jeff, the poorest city north of the Rio Grande in all of North America is a place called Detroit, Michigan. If you understand socialism and understand free enterprise, you can make any rich place poor. Well, or you can make any poor place rich. Charles Goodyear, uh, uh, Harvey Firestone, all good Akron boys rubber capital of the world when you and I were young, they don't make a single tire in Akron, Ohio anymore. But in South Carolina, they do. We tax it in Ohio. They don't do it. When you take from the productive and reward the unproductive, it discourages those who produce and rewards those that don't and creates poverty. So with all that in, in, in mind, because it's so so good, your explanation anyway, it's not the concept, is what what's the is the is the is the end goal for the folks who support that process? Is it power control and manipulation? or do, do they not see that it's a means to the to the negative end of the of the nation? or, or do they not care? Like there's either ignorance 
or it's or it's, it's it's either willful ignorance, right? Or it's worse. And if it's worse, then man, that's a problem as well. So what's the for those in the in the political power and the in the ruling class today that that push that kind of stress? What is the mindset? That's not, that's not ignorance. No, it, it's the way to get power. See, see, the only way that I can be rewarded. If I want to be township trustee or county commissioner in Highland County, I have to be a good farmer, which means I have to work hard. I can't be slopping around. My field can't be a mess. And I have to pay my bills on time. And that's a burden. Or if I could politically get people to support me and then I could get all the advantages of that without having to produce it. So when you see AOC and these other wealthy second generation wealth, they they want the power without having to work at it. And so politics provides that. So in answer to your question is both. Those people that get snookered into it are told because they nobody explained. Listen, this is what Thomas Jefferson spoke about repeatedly. He did not trust businesses. He didn't trust industry because he said, you get people off the farm, they don't understand where wealth comes from. And so he only trusted farmers. And anybody who grows up on a farm understands that if you don't farrow the hogs, if you don't, how much it costs to, to put the crop in the field and how much you get at the end of the month, end of the year, everybody understands that. The further you get from that, then you can get people who would stand in Kroger's and say, why don't they give why don't they give corn to everybody? Because they don't know how it got there in the first place. So those that are in control, they do understand it. But for the vast majority of the people that are in colleges today, for example, uh, they've never, ever been taught. I'm on the board with Charlie Kirk and Turning Point. And, and as Charlie points out, these kids are not socialists. They are 20-somethings who have never, ever been taught free enterprise. All they've been taught is under this term of diversity. What does diversity mean? Diversity means non-American, primarily. It's a professor from Argentina or from, from Pakistan who is a professor teaching these kids because they, the college wanted to have diversity, and he couldn't find Nebraska with a, with a map. And so, therefore, he's, he's trying to explain these situations. He doesn't know anything about what makes America work or what makes, makes, makes an economy work. Therefore, these kids are being trained in that, and nobody's ever explained to them freedom and free enterprise. And when they see it, truth overcomes error then we win. But the difficulty is that our high schools and colleges are filled with people who literally couldn't run a Kool-Aid stand like the fifth grader that wanted to stop the person from driving down the street. Wow. And I, I'll tell you, I see it. Um, I, you know, my, my oldest daughter is 22, my son's 17, and our youngest is nine. And my oldest daughter's kind of figured it out a little bit. My son is 17. He gets all this. He loves world history and he loves the, stu the study of different uh, types of governments and how things are. He loves all that stuff, but inside of him, because of what he's exposed to uh, in public schooling today and social media and all that, there's a piece of him that still wants all this equity for everybody. Um, and I think that there's how do how do you help people understand that that there's value in you and I are both men of faith and how we're called to help serve the underprivileged and we're called to help those who who are needy and who are have less than us. At the same time, you can't, I can't give you something I don't have. So if I haven't gone and earned it, I can't give you something. I can't support those. Those. How, how do you bridge the gap between especially these Gen Zs who say, I get the capitalism piece, but in their mind, they've been sold a bill of goods that are just a bunch of hungry board of directors at these big companies who are just stealing money from all the making people work on these poverty wages versus saying, no, it's a system over here. And then you can still be generous and help those who have less than, because they, 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 sometimes I sense that they don't see it. They don't see one, or, you, you get my question? Like it's tough. Jeff, you actually, in the course of it, you gave exactly the correct answer. That is 
you said, I cannot give something to someone I don't first have. There is the solution right there. Unless somebody creates wealth, there can be no distribution of wealth. And you always hear liberals, they don't, they never talk about creating wealth. And you know why they don't? Because they don't know how wealth is created. Let me just tell you, they don't understand. They don't know. So they always speak, and Bernie and all these people always talk about redistribution of wealth, redistribute. Well, it, 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 it's like, well, let's take the farm kid. So you're going out west. You go through Iowa, and mile after mile, corn on both sides of the road, corn, 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 corn. Finally, you get Nebraska, both sides of the road, wheat, wheat, wheat. Now you get to, to, to Colorado, and you say, it is really terrible, Jeff, the way that corn is distributed in this country. And I'm telling you, it is terrible. You just look at these young people. Look at this. Look at the wheat, mile after mile of wheat. It's terrible the way wheat is distributed in this country. And every little farm kid's going, you idiot. Corn's not distributed. Wheat's not distributed. Corn is grown. Wheat is grown. The reason you don't have any wheat in Colorado is because you can't grow any wheat in Colorado. Therefore, wealth is not distributed. Wealth is created. And when you're the little inner city, New York City fellow grow up and you don't know where the corn came from and you don't know where the wealth came from, then you can say we should redistribute it. And your question goes right to the heart. And the question is this. Every child, every youngster should ask. Government should do this. Question. Government doesn't have anything that it doesn't first take from someone else. So what right do you use the police power of the state to take from one group to give to another because you think they should be done? Under free enterprise, they voluntarily choose what they want. They decide how much money they want to spend on a TV set or an air conditioner or an automobile. They should, those decisions should be made by, under socialism, government tells you what kind of car you can drive and how far you can go and what kind of clothes you can wear and, and whether or not, and now they want to control the money as they're doing in China, where they can tell you where you can spend it. it you can't spend it more than 50 miles from it. If you spend too much for gasoline because you've got too big a car, it'll shut off at a certain time. That's what socialism is, government control of the tools of production. There's, that The antithesis of that is a thing we call freedom. And freedom comes from free enterprise. And this is a fight that has always gone on between those who want to have the freedom to create wealth. And as you know, America is the fountain for all of this. Let's just take a second. For thousands of years, people had hoped to someday fly. It was Americans, Ohioans, by the way, that invented the airplane and the light bulb and the telegraph and the telephone, and the global positioning. There are ships parking in Hong Kong and Singapore at this very moment using a global, there are planes flying over the continent of Africa because the socialist system of everything is atrophied. They're using a global positioning system conceived, invented, and maintained by Americans. There are trucks delivering goods in Pakistan using a GPS conceived, invented, maintained by the 4% called Americans. There is a a Mercedes dealer in Buenos Aires ordering a part from Stuttgart in Germany using an internet conceived, invented, and maintained by Americans. The question with there are skyscrapers all over the world. Why? Because an American named Elisha Otis invented the elevator. And there are places where it's 100 degrees. Why? Because we just saw the, the, the World Cups over in Oman where it's 150, 120 degrees. Why could they be there? Because an American named Willis Carrier invented the air conditioner. Now, the question, Jeff, and what every child should ask themselves when, they're, when, they're, when they're, their uh, broke teacher is, is trying to lecture to them, why did those things take place here? 
You're going to tell me out of 1.4 billion Chinese, there wasn't one Thomas Edison in all of that? I can assure you there was. Look at Americans. Who are Americans? There are people from all over the world. So it's not by race or skin color. It's because of one thing. It's called freedom. And the degree to which you have freedom is the degree to which you prosper and, and succeed. The degree to which you have government control is what you have. And let's just take, I'm old enough to remember, most of the people wouldn't remember, but in the 1970s, we had we had gas lines because we had a president who said that we're running out of gas next Tuesday a week, and we had to have all these regulations. When Ronald Reagan became president, well, the first thing that he did was take all of those Jimmy Carter regulations, throw them in the Potomac, killed the fish, freed the country. When I drove into Hillsborough, in, first of all, I was elected in November of 1980. Liz and I drove back and forth from Hillsborough to Washington, D.C. six times between the 1st of November and the 1st of January in order to set up our office and get a place to stay, et cetera, et cetera. We knew, we knew that unless we had a full tank of gas by three o'clock in the afternoon, that there were no filling stations open any place between here and there. Therefore, we, well, you understand the situation. When Ronald Reagan came in, got rid of those regulations and freed the economy. When Liz and I were driving home for Easter, in April of 1981, she's asleep on the front seat. We're driving up the hill to Hillsboro. There's an intersection where there's three filling stations. None of those filling stations have ever been open after four or five o'clock in the afternoon for months and months and months. It's 11.30 at night. All three filling stations were open. I woke her up. I said, Lizzie, look. I said, had we not won, that wouldn't have happened. See, freedom, a free enterprise only works every time. And socialism only constrains and fails every time. So now let's don't talk about 1970s. Let's talk about 2022. And that is that 18 months ago, America was the largest producer of oil in the world. It not only produced more than we, all that we could use, it was supplying and people were buying oil and gas from the United States. The United States has more oil and more natural gas than any place on the planet. So the rest of the world is buying, is sending money here in order to buy our goods. We elected a president who on the very first day said, no, no, we can be like Jimmy Carter. We're going to shut down the wells. We're going to remove the permission to have permits so you can't drill and produce. And we're going to make our country such that the price of gasoline will have to go up. Why? Because there's a shortage and you'll begin to have less. Now, now we have drained our petroleum reserve to the lowest it's been since 1984 in order to get through the election. See, socialism, <laughs> socialism only does this every single time. So in answer to your question, all the kids need to do is just look at the facts, Jack, and uh, we'll see that any farmer, get any, get any 10-year-old girl or boy in 4-H and they know more about economics than the average member of Congress. Well, wow, that's so true. You said something there was really, I think, profound too, multiple things, but it isn't about the, the individual person because people have come to America from all over the world. It's about operating within that system. And when you're coming from all over the world and you become American and you operate within that system, that's when you can unleash the control or the power of, of freedom on that. Now, what? so my question then, I guess, as you're explaining all that, and obviously we can run down the path of uh, there's a nefarious, you know, a goal and objective for all this. I always used to say this and you know, no offense to a politician, but politicians, everything they do primarily is focused on how do I get best elected in the next cycle? 
And, and if you're on one side of the aisle, then you talk about these issues. If you're on the other side of the aisle, then you know that your base wants to hear about these issues. But today, I feel like it's gone way beyond that now. And now there's a group of people that recognize that if I turn off the oil reserves, if I turn off the, if I do all the things you just described, that's the only way to move forward because we have a bunch of, you know, we have 350 million idiots in America who don't understand uh, that we need a better clean energy policy. So we're going to force it down their throats by turning off everything that they think that they need, which is a, which vehicles that are based on, you know, gasoline. So is, is that really the end game today in politics is, hey, what's the policy that I want? I want all electric vehicles. Forget about how we get there and what it takes and all the pitfalls. So therefore, because Americans just won't do what I want, Immediately, I got to take all these things and start to really build around them all the negative things that are going to drive them to the end of that policy. Well, that's what we, that's why we want limited government, because a government that can give you everything can also take everything from you. And so big business and big labor want to don't want to compete. So they join together and they want to write regulations and rules such that a person cannot be able to, to produce it on their own. So they, they you can't compete. And so they want to write laws to make it, they want to have more regulations, they want to have more taxes, they want to make it harder for a guy on, on Main Street in order to compete. So uh, in, in answer to your, to your question, what are these people up to? That is, they want to use politicians to do for them what they don't want to do in the, in the marketplace. They don't want to stand on the street corner and come up with a superior product because if they fail to, they'll lose. So they want to write, they want to get the government to force them. No, nobody wants to sit in a car with their knees in their face. So given their options, they would not buy a car like that. So they have to get Washington to, to write a regulation that the car would have to be the size that they want. Now, if you want to invest, if you want to invest and make lots of money on electrical cars, nobody wants electrical cars. Why? Well, first of all, it, when the battery runs out, that's $35,000 to replace. So when you're stuck in the snow, as they were out on I-95 recently, and all the after short order, all the electric cars froze to death, and they're going around knocking on the guys with, with, the, with the pickup trucks. Can you take my baby? Can you let my baby stay in your pickup truck because my battery has gone dead and I and so then eventually when the snow is removed and they're and they're able to drive off not the electrical cars because they're going to go back and charge them for seven or eight hours and it costs a hundred dollars to to charge uh, a Humvee etc and quite simply there isn't enough copper there isn't enough copper on the planet to make enough electrical lines in order to do that so it's all a game that you cannot sell in the marketplace. Therefore, you have to buy politicians. And here's the most important thing. How do you get politicians to be able to do that? You have to frighten. You have to frighten. You have to use fear in the electorate. And that is that we're going to run out, as Jimmy said 50 years ago, we're going to run out of oil next Tuesday a week. In Ohio, there were 3,700 acres under glass of those that produce oil, those that produce flowers and, and, and vegetables in hothouses in the state of Ohio. I was in the legislature when they voted to because Jimmy Carter said that we were running out of out of natural gas next Tuesday. You can't wait another 30 days for them to transfer to oil or something else. It is an emergency that oil natural gas in Ohio can go only to residential purposes. So you had to shut down any decorative lighting for any businesses, and those businesses were wiped out in their second and third generation. Why? Because we were immediately running out of natural gas. They use fear. Lies is a more or less political term, but they use fear to manipulate people to get power to do what they couldn't accomplish in the marketplace. And that is always a competition. Big government 
and big leftists are people who are in favor of, of big business. Those who are for Main Street and small towns are conservative Republicans, and that's the battle. And it seems like, I don't know, maybe because I feel like I'm on one side of that argument, um, both due to my faith and then due to a lot of just common sense, I just don't quite understand it. And I know I can have a conversation with folks who d- disagree with me. And even when I'm done with it, I still don't, I don't understand the, the philosophy behind their, their, their angle, because was it, was it Reagan who said it eventually you run out of uh, other people's money to spend? Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, trouble with social, trouble with socialism. Eventually you run out of other people's money. And I guess that what, you know, what's the end game here? Cause you said something about, uh, people on the Democratic side don't really know how wealth is created. Well, it's because that they've they've spent their lives and their the, the the generation before them creating wealth with tax dollars. So therefore, that's the way they think you create wealth. No, that's stealing wealth. That's wealth that has been created. Is, wealth is only created by three people. Three people: a saver, an investor, entrepreneur, and a producer or worker. Those are the three people that create something. They, t- they, they take sand and turn it into glass. They, they, they do something. Now, that throws off benefits for people that can live off of that. And those people go into education. They go into religion. They go into government. They go into welfare. And they go into the arts. They're people that benefit not because of what they produce, but because of li- being the capacity to live off those that did. Now, you would think that they would honor those people. Right. But we've all since learned that the, that a parasite always ends up killing the host. And so you would you would think that our education system would honor those people. But 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 it doesn't. And let's just talk about religion for a second. And see, one of the most effective things is is like as Jimmy used to say, that if if you don't want to, to help the poor, if you don't want a government that helps the poor, then don't say that you're a Christian. Well, that sounds good at first blush until you look at the scriptures and the scriptures simply say this. They talk about helping the poor. That's true, it does. It's 400 and some times and throughout Scripture. In the Bible, three institutions are created. First of all was the family. Secondly was the church. And third is government. All three are godly ordained. Two-thirds of the time, when he talks about helping the poor, he speaks about you and me. A third of the time, he talks about the church. And when I go to these Christian colleges where they bring these leftists in that were my age, they were long-haired hippie creeps, but that now they've learned that in order to seduce these people, they cut their hair and put on a tie and come in and say, you know, they, they say, you know, Jesus never, Jesus never talked about abortion and Jesus never talked about gay marriage, but Jesus had a lot to say about the poor. And now, and who do these, these right-wingers, you know, they're always talking about abortion and, they, and who do we want to be like? Do we want to be like Jesus help the poor? And people think that this makes sense. The very very next point is very simply this. I take the scriptures and I say, look, I don't need a book. I don't need a chapter. I'll take a verse, one verse anywhere where God ever called upon a politician to use the police power of the state to take from one group and give to another. If that's the way you get points in heaven, sign me up. I'm for this program. However, you cannot find it because we were not called to steal from others to give to. We were called to give out of our heart. And that's why this nation is the lighthouse for, you take all the money that goes for global evangelism, 4% of the population of the world, as we said, five and a half times as much as the rest of the world combined. This is the nation that people, when when tsunamis hit the largest Muslim nation on earth, which is which is Indonesia, to whom do they turn? The gold towers of, of Oman and Bahrain? No, they turn to the Americans who are the abundant blessed people that bless the rest of the world. We always have and we all. That's what Christ called us to do. Not 
because he had a gun to our head under socialism, because that didn't produce wealth in order to distribute to anybody. But under the freedom of becoming what God wanted us to be, righteousness exalted the nation. Sin, sin is a reproach to any people. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You do it God's way, as this nation did, and it leads the world. So I, that gets an amen um, or two. <clears throat> so where, where do we go from here? Where, where do you see, because you've, you've seen a lot, and you've seen the evolution of our political system, and you've probably seen you know multiple different administrations on both sides of the aisle, and you see the, the, the yo-yo effect of what happens in the economy over 30, 40 years. Uh, where do you see us going based on where we are now? Uh, the, the thing is, it, it, you, you have the, the pendulum, uh, yin and yang, and here's the advantage is that truth always overcomes error. So in order to have to, to settle socialism or communism or the left, you have to lie a lot. And so you have to shut down people's Twitter accounts and you, you have to shout them down when they speak on college campus and things because those ideas don't work. They never have and they never will. That means that we have the advantage. And let me, let me just quickly uh, walk through that. That is, I can say this room is 15 feet wide. You can be here, say it's 12. Somebody else says it's 10. Somebody else says it's eight. Now we can all just get along fine and pontificate. We can write white papers. We can go to the faculty lounge and discuss it at length. And everybody's happy until someone comes in and measures it. And when they measure it, that measurement is truth. Everything else is error. Therefore, error hates truth. And all of us, you can say it's eight, somebody says it's 10, somebody says, we all pick up on the person who measured it and said it was nine because that nine reveals that we were not telling the truth and therefore error hates truth. Therefore, you, you can tell that there aren't enough hammers, of course, to play whack-a-mole in order to try to knock down the truth. So they have, they have to pervert our Twitter accounts. They have to shut down uh, uh, Google searches and, and Facebook and all the rest because truth overcomes error. And this is the final point. So a person is being prosecuted for stealing an ATM machine. And uh, you're in the, the courthouse and the defense counsel says, why he wouldn't do such a thing. Why he loves his mother. And he was having dinner with his sister out in, in Utah. And, and here's the receipts for the restaurant. You don't care what they say, because when they're finished, you're going to show a security camera of him driving a pickup up to the ATM, and you see him put a chain around the ATM. You see his face on the camera as he leans over, and, and the fingerprints on the, and the truth will overcome the error such that the only way the defense counsel can succeed is to prevent the presentation of truth. Your Honor, I object, I object, I object. Your Honor. Therefore, in answer to your question, how do I feel? I'm not afraid. I know that they are trying to sell something that they have to shout people down. They have to call them names. They have to accuse them of racism or whatever because they can't argue an, a, an idea that has only failed every time. And truth is on our side. When we win, when we get someone, they, they can seduce people for a period. But when truth comes, they lose it. And so, therefore, when I look forward to the future, I'm quite excited. Uh, we, have, we have seen, we've been saying this, Jeff, for years. And we've been trying to get people to care about who was on the school board, and nobody cared. And we tried to get people to care about on city council, and nobody cared. And there is an awakening that's taking place for the first time that they now know you're not going to teach my for your my five-year-old boy, your sexual perversion anymore. Now they've been doing it for years. If you didn't think so, why are they screaming so mad when we're trying to shut it down? When when Governor DeSantis said no, it revealed how much it was really happening because now we begin to see to take control and answer your question. I am very optimistic. 
I am more excited now than I've ever been. There has the idea of seeing the under uh, the sand coming underneath the the building as it was losing its footing has now stopped. People are awake, and I I think the next decade is going to be fantastic. We're in a battle. This is this is a battle. This is this is just like watching Hitler walk across Europe for ten years, and now finally now we hit D Day. Now there's going to be some blood spilled, and there's going to be a battle. But at least now we're engaged in the war finally, and I think we're going to win it. So what what do you say to those out here? You know, they're in leadership positions. Maybe they're small business owners. Maybe they're just leaders inside their organizations that feel that, and they they just don't know what to do, and because they're afraid they're getting going to get canceled, that's going to have a negative impact on their families and all that. I think that's still pervasive, unfortunately, to some degree. I hear it. I hear it in my community. I hear it from some of my friends. They're like, we want to make a difference, but we're we don't know what to do, and then we're afraid if we do stick our neck out, it just isn't worth the risk. How how would you encourage those of us out who want to do something to continue to help? Yes, that is a very, very profound question because it goes to this heart. That is, that there is the nature of man to be fearful. That that it is therefore a tool. So uh, our friend, we have a mutual friend called Andy Andrews. We had dinner one night. And we were, t- and one of his frustrations was, he said, "How is it that these people, these fathers, would load their their Jewish children onto these boxcars to go to the death camp?" I could, he said, I, "I know there was a Nazi down at the end end of the rail yard with a with a gun, but they could have overrun him. Why, how did this happen?" And he and he came out with a little book called "How Do You Kill Eleven Million People," in which he explains that they would they would well let's just how did they get there in the first place? That is, they put all these people in, in the ghetto. How did you get them there? Well, that's to keep them safe. They need to stay together so they can protect them. Why do you put walls around? Well, that's to keep you safe. Why do you have the the guards at the entrance to the ghetto? Well, that's to keep. Why do I have to wear this yellow star? Well, that's so the police will know how to how to keep you safe. So then they come to the fathers and they say, look, the war's not going well. We need to move quickly. There's a much better home and a much better city and much better jobs, but we need to move. You need to go home tonight and you need to take our inventory of everything you've got. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to load on the on the, the the trains and it's going to be uncomfortable. And But their wife is going to take the leadership from you and, and the children are going to take the leadership from both of you. So you need to be calm and you need to load them up because uh, once you've, you've taken an overnight, just enough overnight, we're going to come back with the inventory and we'll get the piano and the rest of the things in a few weeks and it'll be a much better place. But it's important that you be there tomorrow at 10 o'clock and you do this. And they use the spirit of fear. And through fear, they were able to do that. Now, you listen to what they do about if you hang toilet paper on your mouth, that somehow or another, this is going to keep you from getting sick. And, and, and they, they use fear to make you do things that, that don't make sense. Now, the, the 365 times, one for every day of the year, 365 times in Scripture, it says fear not. For the, when, when Christ was born, the angel appeared, the first words out of the angel's mouth, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Christ is walking on the water out to his disciples. His first words, fear not. Man is susceptible to fear. Now, here's the question in, in answer to, to what you just asked. And that is, the, when these people, what do we do in this situation? Uh, you know, I, we're, we're, we're fearful about what the reaction is going to, to be. Where does our strength come from? That is, from where does our strength come? He has not given us a spirit of fear. But of what? Of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, what are those? Those are mirror opposites you, uh, of power. When you're fearful, when you're afraid, you're weak. And, and he's got a spirit of power and of love. You cannot love a person that you're afraid of and of a sound mind. When you're fearful, you don't think straight. So he has not given us a spirit of fear, 
but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So the degree to which we focus on him is the degree to which we become like he wants us to be. And this nation blessed and prospers in the strength of regardless of whatever the little 7 million people in the war of 1812, taking on the strongest nation on the earth. Why? Because we're following him and not fear. So understand where fear comes from. Fear is a spirit. And so we, we reject that spirit of fear where he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and focus on what we are in his sight. Final example. And the first idea that a man, should, a boy should be able to go in and shower with the girls is an absurdity that didn't exist on the planet until 2017. It was the Fort Worth School District in Fort Worth, Texas. The person that proposed that got 1,089 votes. He didn't win by 1,000, but he got 1,089 votes. And he proposed that if a boy felt like a girl, he should be allowed to do that. They, in a school district with 93,000 students, with 800,000 population, and only 1,000 votes decided that guy could do that. Now, two things about that. Number one, how did that happen? It happened because you and I allowed it to happen. And what has happened now in the seven largest school district in, in Florida, with the help of Governor DeSantis, all seven of them have been changed. People are now, for the first time, whether it be in Forest Hills, whether it be in, in, in Hamilton County or in Warren County, they're beginning to recognize as to what who's on their school board for the, for the first time. And in, in the process of it, uh, people becoming awake, they've now begun to willing to serve. And in that case, that's, I repeat what I said moments ago, that is the reason that I'm more optimistic than I've ever been. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Uh, we got to have you back on because I have like so many more topics that I want to cover with you. So if you're willing to come back on and, you know, maybe uh, right in the new year, I'd love to dive into some other topics deeper with you. It's just be wonderful uh, for me personally and for our audience, if you're willing to do so. The honor would be mine. I'd be glad to, Jeff. Thank you. Well, well, we're going to cut this one. We're going to call this one for a close. This has been very insightful, very encouraging. I'm motivated. I'm ready to run through a wall now as well. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. So uh, it's been an honor. So thank you for being on. And we really do appreciate having you. Thank you for what you do. You're an encouragement to us all. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.